0: Here we are with yet another Princess Bride effect film. This really does happen a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> this film, as I'm sure most of you are aware, didn't exactly do all that well at the box office. And that's probably entirely Warner Brothers' fault, because I know this is going to sound strange, but for a film to do well financially at the box office, you need to support it properly. They didn't. So it just kind of came and went, and it was like, eh, whatever. But then people saw it and were like, this, this is this is really good. Uh, and and you know, people who were in charge, people who were money people, saw it and was like, this is really good. What the hell? And so it kind of got a second run, and they really advertised the hell out of the home video run, and then people started picking it up. I will freely admit, I didn't see this one in the theaters either. Then again, I also didn't see Tarzan in the theaters, which was the same year. So make of that what you will. Um, (laughs) I do like the core element, the core premise, if you will. What if a gun had a soul, in the generic definition thereof, and didn't want to be a gun? Now... From what we understand, and from the extended edition, if you could call it that, uh, we could pretty fairly say that these things, plural, because there are more than one Iron Giants out there, are super doomed death robots designed designed to destroy worlds. Now, I'm mentioning this first because, A, it's interesting to speculate on who would design them and why. Now... I could think of several fictional races that could be behind something like this, like the Daleks, for example. They'd be cool with just sending out things to destroy everything else, because what do they care? Everything that's being destroyed isn't Daleks, so why does it matter? Which, funnily enough, brings me to another thing I could see doing this. The Founders over on DSPACE9. I could see them being like, well, yeah, go destroy everything that isn't us, and then we'll be safe forever. It's not like the lives of trillions or quadrillions of people actually matter to them, because the founders will be safe, and that's what really matters. I can see that, too. Ultimately, that's, of course, never answered, because that's not really the point. Of course, there's also the third option. Now, this is the, I'm bringing this one up last because I find it to be the least interesting, but it's also the most pause, plausible. This could be your classic doomsday scenario. Something somewhere built these things, and um then they got out of their control, and that was the end of that. See Star Trek, the original series, doomsday device for a good example of this. Did I just make two Star Trek references here? God, let's, let's try not to do that anymore. Anyway, so, <clears throat> now I'm going to admit something. Now that we started with that, I'm going to admit something else. It's obvious to see why this film is so beloved, and why so many people walk away from this film with a good opinion and impression of it. Now, that's important to note, because I'm not really saying the film's all that good. Hear me out, don't stone me with sticks. Not yet. You can stone me with sticks after you hear my reasoning. I'd say the first half to two-thirds of the film is actively bad, to the point where I found myself wanting to just fast-forward through it. It is in the final act of the film, and the finale, that's where it gains its strength. The moment... You know, we have the conclusion of the Mansley arc. That, if I'm saying this wrong. The conclusion of the second act arc, which is uh, the kid manages to defeat, you know, Hugh, manages to defeat uh, Mansley. And then in so doing, he's like, all right, let's go play. And then the defense mechanism, the automatic uncontrollable defense mechanism kicks in. This, of course, then leads to him freaking out and then running away and Dean trying to protect him and all sorts of fun stuff right at the end there, which, of course, makes sense and is actually pretty awesome. It serves as a wonderful. It, it, if you actually, I know this is going to sound strange, if you basically had the movie be like, oh my god, there's this giant, and then you just did a fade cut and then picked up the film right there with him playing with the Iron Giant in the graveyard. Uh, I think that would kind of work. It'd be extremely short, and it wouldn't be as interesting, but, you know. My point being, that's the part of the story that you're left with. And so you conclude the story with what is arguably the best part of the story. And so that's probably what re- resonates in your mind. I've, and I mentioned this, and again, this is no insult intended, but I've noticed a lot of people tend to have this opinion about video games, too. A video game with a bad or disinteresting opening, or a lot of filler and grack in the middle, that has a fantastic climax or finale, a lot of people are going to tend to think of that game fondly, because the last thing that they went through, the most recent memory, was the good stuff. The reverse true as well if the ending is bad or crap or awful so and i admit I have, I have spent years trying to divorce myself from this exact same opinion for this exact same reason and i still screw up on that but i suppose i should explain why i don't like the first act and a half it's because it's basically nickelodeon <sighs> yeah i probably just lost another half of my viewers by saying that but as i've said many times the nickelodeon thing is just not my thing it never has been not when i was a kid not when I was a teenager, not when I was an adult, not when I was a seven-million-year-old person going through the second time of my time loop. Neither, none of these times have I actually really been into the... the lie, Actually, I wrote it down here. We've got lying. We've got being a brat. We've got gross humor. <laughs> he took laxatives and he has to go to the bathroom in the woods. Isn't that funny? And, of course, there's the Cassandra truth thing. Now, the Cassandra truth thing is a much more minor thing. The kid tries to tell his mother right at the beginning, look, look, there's this giant robot. Yeah, no. And of course, she doesn't believe him. Why would she? That, that does make a lot of sense. But the other, oh, the, and then that's kind of the end of it. The only other real Cassandra truth is actually on the behalf of Mansley. So I'm willing to let that part slide. But we're left with gross humor, brattiness, and lying. And I'm not a fan of any of those things. And this kind of thing continues for, like I said, the first two-thirds of the film. It, it, mm, I'm trying to think how to properly explain how much I, it just doesn't work for me. But that doesn't matter. My opinion here doesn't really matter. <sighs> okay, that's not the right way to say that. My preference doesn't really matter. There we go. My opinion is that this was their attempt to kind of make this appeal to kids. To kind of make this be more of a children's film. And thus, you know, bring in more of an audience than they otherwise would. So that makes a degree of sense. Obviously, it failed miserably, as history has shown. And indeed, what most people talk about in this film is not the kid who's running around and lying and getting into wacky antics. It's the Iron Giant. It's the message. It's Mansley. It's the core elements of the final act of the film, which I've just recited to you. Heck, I have actually seen you know people who are far more successful and well-known than me on the Internet do entire essays discussing the final act of the film. Not the first two parts, just the final part. In fact, the Iron Giant himself doesn't even really show up for 10 minutes and 44 seconds into the film, which may not sound like a lot, but that is a fairly large amount of time before we really establish our uh, titular character here. So, um, I'm looking at my notes. I I really have very few notes for the first two-thirds of the film. So let's just kind of rush through these. I love how there's this cartoon that's playing about Duck and Cover. You remember those? Of course you don't. (laughs) Statistically speaking, I imagine most of my viewers never actually experienced Duck and Cover. I only experienced it because one of my schools... Hang on just a second. Is that one... I think two of my schools, when I was very young, were kind of behind the times. And so they were still doing stuff that at that point was like five to six years out of date. So I have experienced Duck and Cover as a kid. My mom, of course, grew up with it. You know, you go back one generation. So any of you out there who are older than me, I'm 37 for reference. Any of you out there who are older than me, you could probably be like, yeah, no, I remember Duck and Cover. But I bring up the Duck and Cover thing because it was always acknowledged to basically be kind of useless, right? At least when it came into my acknowledgement. I bring that up because not only does it come up in the final part of the film, but the kids are talking completely over it because, well, there's two ways to look at that. One, because they don't take it seriously, which makes a lot of sense. How could a child take nuclear warfare seriously? How is that even possible? They don't have the development to understand the consequences of breaking out at night or eating bad food. So the idea of them trying to comprehend something like nuclear warfare is probably not on the list. But um, the other reason it's interesting, if you think about it, is because, well, this is going from my mom. I actually asked her about this just for this rumination because, you know, this, this is obviously relevant. And she confirmed for me what I was already believing to be true. Even when she was a kid, no one took the duck and cover thing seriously uh, because it's not going to work. There's this one time where she was actually dragged out of class and, uh, you know, wrapped on the wrists because of the fact that she was arguing with her teacher that it doesn't matter if you duck and cover sit here or walk outside and flare all her arms because it's still, she's still going to die if it hits. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> so we see the duck and cover thing. We also see the gun. Uh, we see a gun pretty early. Uh, what I've been by the gun, hang on, let me rewind for a second. We see the BB gun, which is left over, and we see the photo. Both of these are actually part of the... As much as I dislike the the kitty stuff, and the first two-thirds, I have to admit that there are elements of good storytelling here. Uh, they do establish the BB gun for rather early, so Mansley has a way to get involved in the family. And they do establish the photographs. In fact, one of my favorite parts is where he's looking straight into the photo like, ah, and of course he's completely blinded by it. And then he loses the camera, so he never gets to have the images processed, so he can actually see what he took which leads to Mansley later discovering who he is with the BB gun and seeing the photo evidence of the giant because the giant was just sitting right behind him the entire time. Something about that idea amuses me tremendously, I'll admit. I have to admit, though, watching this film now, it's really hard not to hear someone saying Groot every time he talks. I mean, he basically uses the exact same tonality that he does, which makes sense because I'm not sure, I've only heard Vin Diesel use two types of tones ever in his acting career, so, you know, I'm not accusing the man of anything, it just, it makes sense that, you know, doing this kind of not-quite-vocal role, okay, that makes sense. Um, they also do a good job with scale. Obviously, the Iron Giant is three-dimensional, and they put a filter on his rendering, so he looked like he was just a little bit imprecise, kind of like the animated side of things was, which is a good move, by the way. But uh, it it prevents the Aladdin problem from happening, to put it into such terminology. But I like how they frequently showcase just how large this thing is in comparison to the kid who's looking up at him. Excellent usage of scale. He also has tremendous precision, but is not invulnerable. Like I said, there's several scenes which, which do a surprisingly good exposition very quickly and very efficiently. When he's putting the railway back together, he puts it together precisely so it is as if he never did anything at all, which is insane. It says something for how specific he can be, and that is going to come up in basically every scene after this point. But, it all, but you'll notice he's also not completely indestructible, because he then gets hit and is severely, massively damaged by the train, which makes sense. If you actually sit and think about the amount of force that's being applied when a train hits something, it's huge. There's a reason why, if you ever see a train that hits a car or or a vehicle or whatever, that vehicle doesn't slow that train down at all. (laughs) So with that kind of physics, yeah, that would make sense. It also establishes that he can repair himself. That's the point at which it gets into basically movie magic territory, and I'm willing to let that slide. After all, this is designed to be basically a 1950s, you know, alien-inspired Martian beam death ray thing, you know, so sure. Like, why does it need to eat metal? How does metal get turned into, you know, energy, given the kind of output this thing does? You remember that final blast that almost hit the battleship at the end? Think about that for a minute. No, I'm willing to let the physics slide. A little. So, this is when he picks up in the HH thing, and Mansley starts to really hound the kid. But before we get into that, there's this nice bit, again, well done, where the kid is showing him all of these comics. It's like, here, check it out. And then he kind of, the Iron Giant pushes one away, and we see a Toe, the villain, the horrible villain. And he's, and the music even goes, no, 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 Superman. He's a good guy. This is, of course, one of the, the, the... It feels so strange talking about the themes and motifs of this film, because they're so obvious, and everyone knows them. I'm pretty sure people who haven't seen this film know the themes of this film. But it's still nice to see it established in such a way, that he, the Iron Giant, who is still coming to understand and grasp some of the basics of how things work on this planet in an intangible sense, tends to associate Superman with good guy. Hero, if you will. So, uh, <laughs> this is we're, at this point, we're about halfway through the film. Like I said, I'm just kind of fast-forwarding through a lot of the uh, antics. And this is when the, we finally get a little bit of backstory behind the main character, the kid. I keep calling him the kid because I forgot his name. It's like Hogarth or Hazard. And each time I heard it, my mind kept trying to mentally recorrect it to Hogwarts. And I'm like, no mind. That's not who he is. <sighs> his last name's Hughes. We'll call him Kid Hughes. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I still got some details here. Let's look at it. What's his name? What's his name? His name is Hogarth. Okay, Hogarth. hmm, <sighs> <clears throat> <clears throat> That doesn't even sound like a kid's name. That's the other problem. It just doesn't work right. Hoggy might work, you know. We finally get some backstory and characterization for Hogarth. Finally, at this point. Like I said, it's over halfway through the film at this point. Because we find out in his tirade that he's actually... Well, he's not smart. And I hate... I say to say it that way because he is kind of dumb. But I don't mean he's stupid. What I mean is that he just applied himself like any normal kid would. Or, more accurately, like any normal kid could. That's not... I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this without it sounding bad. But the long and the short of it is, he just decided to try and, or his mother pushed him, to go ahead and apply and do the homework and do the grades. And they were like, well, he's smart. Let's push him up a grade. Okay. And now, of course, everyone's making fun of him and, make, and you know pushing him down because he's ahead of grade. Now, I actually know what that feels like because that happened to me once. Uh, Back That was in fourth grade. I skipped ahead from third to fourth. And that wasn't pleasant. In fact, I hated it. I have nothing but bad memories about that. So I'm completely with him on that. I'm also kind of completely with him because one of the biggest insults I heard back then was, Oh, you're so smart. You're such a super brain genius kid. And I kept thinking to myself, No, I'm not. Like, I didn't feel smart. I didn't do anything special. I wasn't inventing robots in my backyard. I just did the tests they told me to do. And so I kind of... If you remember, Hogarth in the film actually says if they just did the homework, they'd be able to do it too. And then they could be made fun of by bullies. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, nod. Just kind of nodding as I'm taking notes here. Getting Valvadrix killed. You know, just stuff like that. And... (laughs) Uh, This also is interesting, though. Because the film has done, as much as I dislike the, the antics section, the film does a good job of establishing the personality of both Dean and Mansley. You notice I have no problem remembering his name. Dean, in addition to being the guy who is, how do I phrase this, obviously smarter than any of the other adults involved, with the possible exception of the general, but he's also the one who has an immediate protective instinct for others, not just himself. Now I point that out in distinction because the moment that there's an issue, the moment there's like, oh my god, something's wrong with the kid, this is when he first meets the Iron Giant, not later. The first time he meets the Iron Giant, his first knee-jerk reaction is grab the kid and try to get out of there. Think about that for a second. Now, you might say, well, of course he does. He's a decent human being, and that's my point. One of the greater thematic cores of this work that I don't think many other people talk about is that basically everyone in the film is a decent person, with only one exception. In other words, even most of the people who serve as temporary or ancillary antagonists are still at their hearts decent people. The general is an excellent example of this. The bullies at school are an example of this. You notice they're playing with him in the end now that they've managed to reconcile. You know, there's no point in time at which anyone, with one exception, is shown to be a legitimately bad human being. They're just normal. There's nothing wrong with normal. Not really. So, this then leads to a montage. Montage! And this, this is, of course, when we start to learn a little bit more about Mansley. The horrible human being, if i didn 't make it incredibly clear now, for the most of the film he 's just been kind of the the target of mockery and derision, so when we see him take the laxative chocolate, the response is ha 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 and of course then he has you know some gross humor over the course of the next montage that follows that however there's a point where he gives a motive rant to. Hogarth. I think that's right. And when he's doing it, he mentions basically the way he's talking is I'm trying to think kind of phrases. It's coached in reasonability. It's like when you take a, a poisonous pill and surround it by a bunch of sugar. And I know that sounds like a weird analogy, but hear me out. Because his overall point is we don't know where that's from or why it's here, or who made it, or what they were after. That makes it a threat. And you know what? He is 100% right about that. He is. Even ignoring the fact that the Iron Giant very nearly, accidentally murdered the kid without meaning to, twice. Even ignoring that very obvious point, even if we didn't know the Iron Giant was a decent thing, we know that because we've been interacting with him as the audience. As an outside source, all you can know walking into this is that it is an unknown. Now, that does not mean you be overreactionary, but it does mean you be cautious. And I'm pointing that out because I want that to be in your mind for later, too. So they find the photo. Uh, oh, yeah. Quick aside. Very nice minor point. It's kind of obvious, but I feel feel like pointing out because it was well done. Every single newspaper in the entire film has some kind of doom and gloom. Pa- plastered all over the news headlines. Anyways, so Mansley officially finishes his journey into becoming the villain of the film when he kidnaps a child against his will and interrogates him by threatening his mother. Yeah, that's a bit much even for a cartoon. And, of course, he's so smug... This is, this is of course, when they start to really ingratiate how much we want him to fail, is because they make him just a smug bastard. <laughs> that's right, kid. I beat you. I'm better than you, and I managed to win, and that's what really matters. Because it's not like I'm actually concerned about, you know, support or safety of the country or anything relevant. No, no, I, what matters is I beat a 12-year-old or however old the kid is. <laughs> smug, smug. And so, (laughs) so he loses, of course, because they, they do, they, they manage to, to figure out a way to think around this. But that's when the things, well, that's when the villain that isn't a villain pops in, whoever programmed and designed the Iron Giant. Because that's when, and I've referenced this a few times, the Iron Giant very nearly accidentally kills Hogarth twice. This is when Dean pops in and is like, dude, no. And, of course, Dean is paying attention, recognizes, and has a degree of pattern recognition because he has a brain. (laughs) I call him normal. It's worth noting Dean in the 1950s would not be normal. But you can see why I call him a normal guy, despite everything. Despite being hip, yo. (sighs) Anyways... um. The finale kind of speaks for itself in many ways. They, there's this wonderful bit where they, you know, they're trying to deal with it, and the Iron Giant's just trying to get Hogarth away, just trying to get him to safety because he doesn't understand what the hell's going on. They send fighters, and the fighters shoot him down, and he collapses. He's like, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And he's just like distraught. There's a line, it's so quick, you probably wouldn't even notice it, where the general says, we need to go find out who built this thing, why it's here, and what it's doing. And my first reaction was, of course. Like, that's what you probably should have done initially, but, you know, he's thinking in that direction. So they approach the thing, they see it's still mobile, and the first thing that Mansley says is, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it! So then they still open fire on the unknown t- target, which then immediately turns around and starts absolutely devastating them. This is the first time we see what an Iron Giant can actually do, at a fraction of its power. I remind you that the only time ever we see an Iron Giant actually going full tilt is when we see it nearly destroy the battleship and several, I I don't know, I'd say at least a mile diameter sphere in the process. Um, I wonder how many fish died that day. The Iron Giant just goes nuts on them. And the whole time we see Mansley freaking out and panicking as he's desperately trying to get away. You're probably noticing a bit of a pattern here. They finally get to the point where they're like, Okay, we're going to bring in the battleships. Battleship doesn't work. There's only one thing we can do. We need to bring in nukes. You'll notice that Mansley's the one who suggests that, and the general balks at the idea initially as any good general should at the idea of using nuclear weapons, especially on American soil. I'm sorry, I'm saying that the wrong way. Uh, It's not about the fact that it's American, it's about the fact it's their own soil. So what I mean is an American general, on American soil. In other words, any good general should balk at the idea of using nukes on their own territory. Moving on. So, (laughs) they, uh, yeah, they decide to go ahead and pull this whole thing, and the kid... <sighs> There's a really great bit where the kid manages to reach out to the Iron Giant and be like, look. And the Iron Giant's like, okay. <laughs> one of my favorite parts is Hogarth, in probably his one true heroic act in the entire film, stands there knowing that he might be about to kill and nevertheless does not flinch away. Now, I want you to remember that. I already feel the tears starting to come. I'm sorry. The finale of this film's really good. For all of my complaints about the first two thirds, the finale is really good. The kid is just—he knows that he might be about to die. He doesn't know what that means, of course. He's a child, but he knows that he might be about to be shot dead. And you notice he flinches when he tells the Iron Giant to choose. Now, that's important, because he's not standing there because he knows with total certainty that the Iron Giant will choose him. He's choosing to stand there without that certainty. You know what that's called? That's called bravery. That's called being afraid and not letting that fear stop you. The fact that he was still a feared, still afraid, afraid and that fear didn't stop him, that's critical. Remember that. So he's interacting with with, with the Iron Giant and the Iron Giant chooses him and they start rushing back. And he's like, no, no, don't shoot, don't shoot. There's the kid. What? I thought the kid was dead. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that Mansley lied about it killing a child just to ensure that the military would escalate because that way he would have the military on his side and try to kill it. Anyways, so Iron Giant comes back. Dean is trying to talk sense to the general. The general is a decent person, like everyone else in this film, with one exception. So, uh, Mansley screeches into the thing, fire, fire, fire. Now, okay, quick aside, I know this is a cartoon, but that's not how that works. (laughs) There's um, a lot of reasons why there's a lot of checks and balances, even back in the 50s. In fact, I would go so far as to say, especially back in the 50s, about the fact that you can't just have someone, some unidentifiable voice on a radio screeching for firing, and then go ahead and launch nukes. It doesn't work that way. But let's let's all accept this for a moment. It's a cartoon, whatever, moving on. And they launch the nuke. What follows is my favorite sequence of scenes. It's like three or four scenes, but it's effectively one extended scene. Favorite scene in the entire film. Because the general then turns in exasperation. To the, to the man. And it's almost like a cartoon for another second, cause he's like, you idiot! Where do you think it's targeting? It's targeting here! And I mention that because in a cartoon, they, they would say like, ah oh, yeah, that's cute. And then the cartoon facade just sort of drops. As all of a sudden you realize that all those people are about to die. And they make that very clear. All attempts at levity, gone. All attempts at facade, gone. All of a sudden, it becomes very clear what's happening here. And Mansley says, I forget what it is, but the general says something along the lines of, we're all going to die here, we're all going to stand here, and, die. and he says it sarcastically, die for our country. And Mansley's like, screw my country, I want to live. And he tries to rush off. That doesn't go very well for him. It's also effectively the last time we see Mansley. His final act is to be afraid and to allow that fear to control him. Mansley at his core is someone who is not just a coward, because saying someone's a coward doesn't really get it across. He is someone who is possessed by his fear, to the point where he no longer has the capacity to function as a normal, rational human being. He is also, in addendum to this fear, sufficiently self-interested that the only one he really cares about when the, when the stakes are down is himself. You'll notice in his attempt to flee, you might think, well, maybe he could flee and take some people with him. Like the children, for example. Nope, he only cares about himself. Contrast this to Dean earlier, whose first knee-jerk automatic reaction was to grab the kid and try to get him to safety. I know Dean's the good guy, and Mansley's the bad guy, but I make this point because, as I said before, basically everyone's the good guy in this film, with only the one big exception. Mansley is a disgusting and despicable human being, not because he's afraid, not because he's selfish, but because he is afraid to an extreme, and selfish to an extreme. And he allows both to dominate him to the point where he is um, probably worthy of dying, if I'm being completely honest. Look at the laundry list of things he does in this film, really look at it and think about all that he nearly did. Just just really picture that and this is the final contrast point. Mansley, out of his fear, decided that you know it was worth launching the nuke and doing whatever it took in order to try and destroy this place right and when <sighs> I'm trying to think how to properly put this into focus, because I'm trying to compare Mansley to the Iron Giant himself. The Iron Giant... The Iron Giant, even in a state of fear, when there was an accident and when the kids were nearly lost on the bridge, what was his first reaction? To help them. When Mansley, he runs and tries to save his own hide. But... So it's, not, it's a bit of a perspective of selfishness versus selflessness, but it's also a little bit of... <sighs> the Iron Giant nearly killed Hogarth. Mansley nearly killed Hogarth. The first with the laser beams and the second with the nuke. But their comparative reactions to these accidents really helped to showcase this. Neither Mansley nor the Iron Giant had malicious, deliberate intent to kill. Not really not not hogarth and yet in both cases they nearly did hogarth or excuse me iron giant's reaction to this was oh my god no no i just i can't possibly no this isn't you know what manzi's reaction is oh crap that means i'm in danger forgive me for hammering this point in but i think it's actually one of the better character pieces of the entire film it probably doesn't help that Mansley is arguably the only character that has any real characterization to him other than being a decent person. No offense to the other characters, unless I haven't even mentioned the mother. So, uh <clears throat> this so Mansley's a horrible person. And what's interesting is what happens next is everyone just kind of stands there. They even make the mention. We could duck and cover. That's not how that works. There's no surviving this. That's a nuke. (laughs) You could start running now if you want to die with the heat at your back. You won't even notice the difference, though. (laughs) Everyone in town just stands there. What can they do? There's a weird acknowledgement. A lot of these people, especially the adults, have grown up with the fear and understanding. That's a bad way to put it because this is the 50s. The film is portrayed in a way that the adults understand what's happening. Let's put it that way. So they just stand there. What else can they do? There's nothing you can do. Hey, the star's about to go supernova. I mean, what do you do, right? i than rob a bank. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There's no point. There's no point. What could you possibly do? You're dead. You know it. You know it. So everyone just kind of stands there. And then the sirens go off. Now I'm going to go and admit something that's going to make me seem really stupid. I started bawling when the sirens went off and everyone was just standing there looking up. I don't really know what it was. I've talked about this before. I've always had a thing with nukes. They always hit me in a way nothing else does. And I don't really have a good reason why. I was born in 1982. I wasn't really born in the threat of nukes in the strictest sense of the word. And yet, for some reason, that has always hit me particularly badly. Maybe it's just because of my mom and the way she raised me. I don't know. But seeing that... And seeing that reality just kind of struck me like a lightning bolt. This is, of course, why the Iron Giant, seeing and comprehending the situation, so logically says, I'm out. After all, you are what you choose to be. And he didn't want to be a Tamo, He wanted to be Superman. As with most films of this manner, it ends on a, a light note. Hogarth's life has gotten better. Dean and I can't even remember her name have gotten together. There's the, there's the Iron Giant statue. The people venerate him. And the Iron Giant lived. All the parts are still trying to repair each other. Woo, that's that's good. That's good. Um, not sure how that's going to work out long term, but whatever, as they say. And I can see why the, some of the creative talent behind this film would go on to work at Pixar later on. Because you can see some of the fingerprints there. You can see some of the hallmarks. And you can see how this, with a little bit of additional time and attention and backing from the studio, could have been one of the best animated films ever. Instead, it is still a really good conclusion to an otherwise forgettable animated film. And that conclusion by itself sells it. Despite my comments at the beginning, thank you if you've managed to stick with me this far, I still enjoyed this, Entirely because of the finale because there was so much to, to dig into and so much to enjoy and so much to feel I wasn't joking when I mentioned earlier. I really did start crying watching this film This is not my first time watching this film How many of you cry when you watch this film at what point I? Hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this um, As of recording, I don't know if we're going to look at any other animated films because the voting's still going on. So we'll see if there's any others going forward. So this might be an an exception for this year. But either way, it was very interesting uh, doing a rumination on an animated work like this. I have to admit, it's kind of something outside my norm. (laughs) So, nice stretch. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time, guys.